Gumbate! Is this the chin of security? Who do you think they are, by the way? Who are the three villains? If it somehow messes up, I'll blame it on you. And while he might not have taken a whole lot of the story from Hidden yeah. Fortress, he definitely took all of Kurosawa's techniques. Hello, and welcome to episode eight of Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I'm Jason. And I'm Max. And today we'll be covering Akira Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress from 1958, uh, starring Toshiro Mifune, along with Misa Uehara, Minoru Chiaki, Kamatari Fujiwara, and Susumu Fujita. That's the, that's the starring cast right now. Yeah. Um, those are the main actors. This is a class of Japanese films called Jidai Geki, which are adventure period dramas generally set in the Edo period, or also called the Tokugawa period. Uh, but they also, well, that's the one most of these, these kinds of films are set in their, Jidai Geki means period drama. And uh, this one is certainly more on the, on the edge of adventure. Is there uh, a century? Is there a specific century that that period is? Um, it's from the, the, the Edo period is from the 1600s, early 1600s to 1858. Okay. Um, and uh, so that's the main period that the Jidai Geki uh, are done. But there is also another period. They, they also do it in the time of the Troubles, pre-Edo pre period. Uh, the Edo period is a time of uh, real prosperity and stability in Japan from like, well, it was from about 1615 to 1858. And I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but there wasn't a lot of conflict. There wasn't a lot of wars. The great leader, Iyasu, Iyasu Tokugawa, basically forged a, a really rigid peace uh, in Japan. So there was a, so people were able to kind of uh, experience art and do a lot of things that they weren't able to do during the, the height of the feudal fighting uh, of Japan pre-Tokugawa. This film takes place pre-Tokugawa because there's these clans are fighting, right? And after Tokugawa, that, that pretty much stops for, well, until, until now. We don't have a whole lot of that today, I don't think. But, but this is, I think, I think because of the presence of matchlock rifles in the film, I think it's in the Sengoku period, which is around four, is from 1467 to around 1615, just before the Tokugawa period takes over. So about 1615 on is Tokugawa. This is Sengoku, uh, the Sengoku period. And this is characterized, this period is characterized by violence and strife and uh, lots of fighting. So that's the, that's the basic uh, rundown of the film. Uh, do you have a question? You're, were you going to raise something? Uh, I, I did look up enough to know, and I'm not I'm not a, an authority on Japanese history at all. Uh, I'm more of a, a Western uh, history guy, but I did uh, look up enough to see that the the two clans in the film were real clans. Okay, yes. I, I mean I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you. I'm not an expert in Japanese history either. Um, for folks who want to know, I speak a little Japanese, and I like to go to Japan. Uh, obviously, this year has not been a great, I haven't gone to Japan this year, but, but uh, I like to go to Japan. I, I train, and, and prior to COVID-19, I taught judo as well as Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So, but I'm not an expert in the history, so I was doing a lot of reading today, too. The film's title is kind of interesting because it's, uh, did, you see the, did you catch the subtitle in the beginning of the film? I don't know if I did. Well, what's up? It's called the Hidden Fortress in America, yeah. but the it's it's in in Japanese. It's called uh, the Three Villains of Hidden Fortress of the of Hidden Fortress. The version I watched didn't have that. Okay, okay. 
I wouldn't um, notice. The film's Japanese title is Kakushitorire no San Akunin. So anyway, uh, I probably butchered that. Don't don't at me, people. Uh, uh, but the three villains of Hidden Fortress. Who do you think they are, by the way? Who are the three villains? Well, see, this, is a question, was, this, this is a question I was asking myself a lot. I know two. Okay. Uh, and that would be um, not the I would not call them protagonists, but the two... Um, Kind of the, the characters that we follow through the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get into that in a second. But now you've got me thinking, maybe by the end of this, we'll be able to get number three. So this is the uh, riddle. Yeah. I, I uh, That's very interesting because I have a lot of thoughts on this film. Um, I had never seen it before. Well, the, I, I, I don't have a whole lot of production notes because while I speak a little Japanese, I don't read it. I don't read it as well as I speak it. So um, I'm sure that there's a lot of resources uh, that I that are out there in Japanese that I could read about, but I I, I don't read Japanese very well. So, um, but what I did notice while watching this is that uh, Kurosawa is one of those directors who is is like John Ford. He's like in the modern day you might think of Chris Nolan. He had they have a stable of actors that they work with a lot. A lot of the people in this movie are people you've seen in almost every other Kurosawa film. Uh, Toshiro Mifune, of course, was in, gosh, so many, I, I want to say most of, of, of uh, Kurosawa films. But there's also uh, the, the, the two actors of the, not protagonists, but not evil villains of the film, uh, Tahe and Matashichi, uh, which are the, the people we meet at the beginning, which we'll get into in a second. But that's, those are played, I mentioned earlier, by Minoru Chiaki and uh, Kamatari Fujiwara. And uh, those guys are staples of... Kurosawa films, uh, yeah. but so is uh, Takashi Shimura, who was the the main general in uh, the, the the main hero in Seven Samurai, the um, Yul Brenner Samurai. The well, yes, that's right, that's right. Um, <laughs> or Yul Brenner was the, uh, right, right. the Takashi yeah, yeah. Shimura, uh, right, 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 cowboy. Um, but uh, but and even this uh, this woman here, Eiko Miyoshi, uh, she's the old lady who's with the guy from Seven Samurai. Yeah. And yeah. she, I, th I think, and I could be wrong about this, guys. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll try and edit in a little sidebar later on about this. But uh, I think she's, she's in uh, Throne of Blood, too. I think that she's, I mean, she's, I think these, these are all people that you see in Kurosawa films a lot. The only person who isn't, really, is uh, Misa Uehara. She plays Princess Yuki. Sidebar. Eiko Miyoshi is indeed in Throne of Blood. She plays the old woman at the castle. Throne of Blood is another movie you should see, and it is Akira Kurosawa's adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth. So endeth the sidebar. A couple couple notes here. Uh, I didn't get a chance to check out all of the other names, but uh, Yuki means snow, which we'll come to in a bit, I think, because I think that that's, I think that that's a name that's intentional. And Matashichi is one of the protagonists. I may refer to the protagonists as droids, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll we'll get to that in a bit too, but 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 Matashichi is uh, means uh, see you later, oh. and that'll make sense in a bit. So, but that's really all of the the production notes I have because, like I said, I I, uh, I don't read Japanese. And I'm sure there's other things out there. So let me lay out the plot a little bit, and it might be a little easier if I lay out the story pre-opening shot. What's happened in the film is that there are two warring clans, the Akizuki. Uh, and the Yamana yeah. clans, and they've had a battle, and the, the Akizuki clan is lost, and right. it's in disarray. There's a princess, Yuki, which we'll meet later, who's on the run, and the, the Yamana clan is hunting down royals of, uh, of, the, of the Akizuki clan. 
Uh, they've won for now, and, and they're on the hunt. And that's the story that we don't know anything about when the film opens. The film opens on these two bickering peasants who look dirty and disheveled, and they're having this insulting fight on one another. So they had originally come from their, their home village to join the, Yawara, the, the, Yamana clan, the Yamana clan to get rich, to attack the Akizuki clan, and make a little bit of money before they came back home. But they arrived late. They are mistaken for... Sorry, this is also part of the backstory, which, we're, we're, which they're paying out to us now. But they arrive late, and they're mistaken for Akizuki uh, soldiers. And they get conscripted... Uh, they're gravediggers for a while, which would be a terrible thing in this period in Japan because handling dead bodies was, would have been a taboo in the Shinto religion. Um, so nobody would like to do it. And uh, if they did, they would, they would lose face and, and uh, it wouldn't be very cool for them. But uh, and I'm sure the bodies were all gross and cut up and hacked up. So there's a lot of, a lot of reasons to be, foul, uh, to be sour about this situation. But they're complaining. They've either been let go or they've escaped. Do they explain that? Um... I don't think that I don't remember them explaining what happened. They're because when the film opens, they're kind of hitting at each other, yeah. blaming each other for everything. They're blaming each they're, other, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but I can't remember I if they were turned loose or if they escaped. I yeah. can't remember that. And so they're trying to figure out what to do. They've got to get across this border, which we'll learn about later. They have a big fight, and during this fight, we get a really horrific scene of some samurai stumbling into the frame. This is all a really amazing shot too, which is a very long shot. Um, Kurosawa liked long shots uh, and he liked to use, a, I guess, long lenses to, to bring the actors into focus and kind of blur the back frame a little bit, but it centers them really well. I think, and this is just pure supposition on my part, I think Kurosawa would have really loved the new 3D technology that, that we have now. Um, but I could be wrong. Uh, anyway, uh, and the samurai is running from some people. And uh, we get the first really cool action by uh, Minoru uh, Chiaki and, uh, sorry, I keep forgetting his name, and uh, Kamatari uh, Fujiwara um, doing what they're going to do a lot in this film, which is be funny and then navigate from funny, bickering, comedic type characters to really scared, horrified people who have no control over anything that happens um, around them. Now, that's not to say that they don't, they don't get themselves in a lot of trouble, which we'll get to in a bit, but, but in the presence of other classes, these, these two characters, uh, Matashichi and uh, Tahe, they don't really have a lot of, they have no political power, um, but they, they're horrified by this, this guy who's clearly wounded, stumbling into their, into their life and in, in their argument. And uh, then these samurai just ride in and kill the guy really horrifically. And, uh, and then... Uh, our two protagonists, they kind of cower and bow and, and be as subservient and uh, obsequious as possible in the, in the presence of these samurai. And then the samurai just leave. And then our, her our heroes, for lack of a better word, argue about what to do next. Do we go home now? What do we do? And this argument, this discussion spills them back into the argument. And uh, uh, then they, they go their separate ways. Anything you want to add to that? It's obviously a very important introduction mm -hmm. because these two these two characters are go are really the thread that kind of goes all the way through the film to the end. And uh, our reaction to these characters is actually, I think, a very important piece of how we appreciate the film and what we think about the film. I agree. I agree. The, one of the things, just from a filmmaking standpoint, is this is a really neat scene. And I don't know how much, maybe you can speak to this. Um, you've watched a lot of older films. Uh, I can't think of a, of a, of a movie that, 
plops us like I've, I've given you guys a lot of backstory we don't get any of that uh we get in the opening scene we get plopped right into this argument of these two guys on the road and this scene has to function as exposition right and it these two guys and their argument fill us in on everything that they that we need to that we kind of need to know about for now and i just think it's really efficient storytelling i mean they could have done like a a title scroll or uh you know in 1720, you know what I mean? They could have done something like right. that, that we would have to read. But instead it kind of plops us right into the middle of this drama. There's been a battle, we haven't seen it. We're seeing the beginning of the aftermath of it. And so I just think it's really cool. Anyway, the droids get separated only, uh, and they, get, they both get caught really quickly. Again, they think they're gonna have to do grave digging, but uh, they're caught separately and they end up in the same Akizuki palace to dig for gold because there's this is the one of the other drivers of the plot is this hunt for and transportation of the Akizuki fortune which is uh which will be crucial later on um so this is this has got some funny scenes in it too when they see each other and they're like oh my friend and they don't want to get separated but they get separated it's it's all pretty cleverly done this is a really horrifying scene these people are treated really badly you don't get to be men you don't get to be men until you find gold and, and until then you're i can't remember what the the Yamana uh, general says, uh, but uh, he calls them, he says they can't be men again until they, uh, until they find the gold. And, uh, and so they, they, they don't seem to get much food. They're really dirty. They're digging around in the mud. At night, there's an uprising of the labor and a really good battle scene that Machishichi and Tahe very cowardly slip away from. <laughs> yeah. They hide as the battle goes on. And there's this really, I mean, it's a, it's a really exciting scene. Um, of this kind of violent drama that's playing out around them, it seems like the the y- y- uh, Yamana clan gets driven out by the by the conscripted labor, and uh, at least for that for now, and that allows our heroes to leave. And, well, uh, and this might be a good a good time to add something. Uh, uh, because that's the scene with the stairs, right? Are, are you aware of uh, how uh, of what Kurosawa was inspired by for that scene. Oh, no, no, no. Tell me about it. So you've um, got some reading. Uh, well, no, actually, this or is just all some very, watching movies. This is very fortuitous. I just watched um, about two weeks ago, the battleship Potemkin, which okay. is a, Russian, a silent Russian film from 1925. Okay. Um, that is considered one of the best silent movies ever made, which I concur because the editing of the film is just astounding because most silent films are, are very kind of just pretty you know, choppy. Open. Open the lens, here's a scene, close the lens, go to the next one. This is, um, the battleship Potemkin is very much cut, edited, what I think like a modern film. It's a silent film. Oh, yeah. but, but there is a scene where um, uh, um, it's a Soviet propaganda film and talking about this incident from, the, um, uh, from 1905 when these Russian sailors uh, revolted or, or mutinied against their their commanders. And then there's a scene where the people of Russia rise up uh-huh. and, and they rush the Tsar's soldiers and there's this big staircase and they're, they're all begging for their lives and they're all shot. Um, and and it, it's a pretty horrifying scene for 1925. Yeah. And it inspired uh, the staircase scene in The Untouchables. In okay. um, but I think it also, and I think I, I, I read this a little bit, that Kurosawa did like, he was very interested in American cinema going all the way back. He liked D.W. Griffith. He liked uh, uh, F.W. Murnau. He liked all those directors. Of course, this would be a Russian director. 
I think that that scene with the stairs was actually a nod to the battleship of Yemkin. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, uh, this was a time period uh, of a lot of cross-fertilization of film ideas. Um, yeah. Probably the whole century was like that uh, with the pauses between wars. But there was a lot of that happening. I mean, we've talked a lot about Kurosawa's uh, and Ford's affection for each other's films. Yes. Um, and you can always see, I think you can always see influences of, of Ford on Kurosawa. And uh, and then, of course, that was reseeded, that, that seeing the Western kind of filmmaking, the American kind of filmmaking, through Kurosawa's eyes, eventually comes back and, and really affects the, the film, uh, the ideas of... Uh, American filmmakers, starting really early, even into the 60s. I mean, without Kurosawa, there's no uh, Magnificent Seven. You know, there's a lot of Westerns that probably don't get made without, without Kurosawa. Magnificent Seven, and then, of course, the Italian uh, spaghetti Westerns. Exactly. Uh, Gotham escaped from, we've got our heroes, the peasants, the greedy peasants. And that's something I want to go ahead and call them right now. These are the greediest characters I've ever encountered in film. And their greed really causes them and everybody around them a lot of trouble, a lot of grief. And all the way through the film. Yep. All the way through the film. But so they leave the area. I think they steal a pot and some other things and they're running. I think that that's implied. They steal uh, some stuff from a villager and they run off into the woods. And this is where they're they're cooking and complaining in a really funny scene. Um, They're having trouble getting their rice up to temperature and they find a bunch of, they find a, a bar of gold hidden in the firewood that they're using. And that leads them to try and find this gold, uh, the, 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 more of the gold. Um, and they're pretty sure that they know that it's the Akizuki gold because it has the, the Akizuki crest on it. And so they know there's gotta be more cause that's what they were digging for back at the castle. Um, and while they're doing this, they find a couple of bars of it and it's during their fighting over the two bars of gold, which you would think that they would split evenly um, because they're both working hard to find it. They fight over the gold. They fight over everything. Uh, they're not, they don't seem to be good friends to me. Like they, they always seem to try and like cheat each other. Uh, they, they want all the gold for themselves. They, they get really nervous about sharing the gold. When they ever, when even, even when they talk about it, especially Matashichi, when, when uh, there's a scene where, uh, his, uh, his friend, I guess, Tahe is like, let's, we've got to make an agreement to split this gold fairly. And it is like pulling teeth to get Matashichi to, to agree to that. He doesn't want to make that agreement. Uh, during this, this clash is when they meet, uh, a mysterious stranger, um, who's introduced in this wonderful long shot through a, like a valley or a ravine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, the first time we see Toshiro Mifune, uh, our, our protagonists are, grappling with each other ineptly because they are inept at everything that they do. Yeah. Um, except surviving, maybe. Except surviving. Yeah. And that's just an accident. So they're <laughs> grappling and they, they kind of notice this imposing figure on a hilltop above them. And it's a great shot. Every sh- I think almost every shot in this film is well composed. And I, I did do some reading today about uh, Kurosawa's uh, process. He was a painter before yes. he was a filmmaker. And he would paint out the scenes and this was also the first film that he got to use a widescreen uh, lens yes. for the, uh, for the, for yeah, the uh, to- Toho scope, I believe it was called. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it shows that he, he had been thinking about widescreen for a while. And, and, and painting his, I always, whenever I watch a Kurosawa film, I always think about the 
composition of the scenes. And he's, he always gives a lot of thought to foreground, midground, and, and background, and, uh, and also how he wants his actors to be uh, in a shot. So he's got very specific blocking. Sometimes it looks, sometimes the blocking can look unnatural, I think, because it's, it almost, it's, it, it, sometimes it's, it's uh, there's a scene, and we'll talk about it later on, where one of the actors in it stands still for an, I mean, it's a long scene, uh, and he doesn't move at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, this actor, uh, and I, I will t- I'll say that for the I'll say that for that scene. But but, okay. uh, but this is our introduction to the this the the mysterious man. This is our introduction to the hero, the, the real heroes of the film. So Shira Mifune plays General Rokura, Rokurata uh, Makabe, Makabe, yeah. Makabe, and uh, and he's of course protecting Princess Yuki. He's intend his intention really was to kill these peasants. Uh, yeah. After, after he kind of realized they were hunting for his gold. But they come up with the scheme for crossing a dangerous border uh, by going through the lands of the Akazuki enemies, crossing at, the, at that border, as opposed to crossing into their... The Akazuki want to get to a place called... Uh, gosh, what's the name of there? The uh, Hayakawa. There's a clan that is an ally of theirs. Hayakawa, yeah. Uh, and they need to get to that land, but the their enemies are guarding that border really well. So what they're gonna do is go through the belly of the beast and they're gonna go into their enemy's land, cross at that border, which will be less well guarded and then cross through their enemy's land and into their allies land where they can rebuild and regroup. And, uh, but anyway, that's how we meet them. And it's all really clever uh, when, they, when they reveal their plan, the general, Makabe, I'll call him Makabe. He realizes immediately how he can use these greedy, greedy peasants. He's gonna use them as pack horses because he knows that if you, if you pack them with gold, they'll endure anything because you can rely on their greed. I, I, I kind of wanted to hop in because that scene right there, we, the scene that you're talking about, the two quote unquote protagonists yeah. get down and they draw in the sand. They draw a map of the three provinces yeah. and they explain very clearly what they want to do. And uh, I mean, of course, this is a Japanese film. It's subtitled. It yeah. should be watched in such a manner. Yeah. Um, but actually, even if it was not in a language that we didn't understand, yeah. I think that uh, one could easily get kind of lost in some of the the political aspects of it. Oh yeah, that scene where they draw the map. Yes, is is brilliant exposition because it's it's not heavy handed. It's very simple. Yeah, but it absolutely allows the viewer to get all the information that they need. Yep. so that they can focus on the adventure and focus on the characters and focus on what's happening. Because okay, we know what they have to do. Yep. Yep. Uh, we know what the goal is. And I think that um, the film is, uh, and I guess I would say this to all the listeners who might be intimidated by watching a foreign film, maybe. Yeah. Um, this is a very accessible film. Absolutely. Very accessible. I would, I would recommend this to anybody who, I, I mean, I don't want to get ahead of myself here yeah. uh, in terms of, you know, the, the final verdict, yeah. but I would suggest to anybody who's intimidated by watching a foreign film, this film does a grand job of um, of, of uh, providing exposition to a plot that is very accessible and is something that you can kind of absorb and just enjoy the action that is taking place on the screen. Absolutely. And uh, I, I watched an interview with uh, George Lucas about this film and about Kurosawa generally, and he mentioned something that I thought probably helps along with that is that Kurosawa is still operating as a guy 
um, probably still very influenced, even though it's 1958, still very influenced by being a person who created films when they were still silent. Yeah. You know, watch films when they were silent, right? So, so he does craft a very accessible film. And uh, no, no, I, I just, that, I, I don't really have anything to add to that. I think that that's exactly right. Um, by explaining that so clearly, it helps us figure out the geography mm-hmm. of the adventure. So I don't know what anything you want to add to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, actually I would add to what you just said is that um, the original term movie uh, actually referred to silent films. I mean, we forget now that from 1928 for a decade or so, we were called talkies. Yeah. The whole idea of a silent film is that a story is being told in mere images. And I think what you're getting at is that Kurosawa was very interested in that idea. He was very interested in the idea of telling a story visually. Yep. And uh, he, is cer- he was certainly a director that was a master of that. Well, and this is something that I think is actually really necessary because I was watching the film again today and this is an interesting, uh, it's, this film really makes a lot of use of Japan's kind of harsh geography. It's the area is mountainous. We don't get in an American story like this uh, in the West, we would have long horizon shots and, and uh, we'd have like a lot of space, but even though Kurosawa uses a lot of long lenses, Sometimes the scenery and the backgrounds are very close to the to the to the to the camera. Uh, this is a, a much more uh, mountainous and rugged Japan than than I think I'm used to seeing in a lot of films. Uh, it's not Kansas. It's not Kansas, and uh, but so I think that that's that's very necessary to kind of help explain uh, how they're going to move through the through the through the scenery. So the general General Rokurota, uh, he. Uh, he says, he very cleverly says, well, moving 200 pieces of gold would be hard by myself, but with three of us, we can easily do it. And so he, he gives up the ghost and he, he basically hints that he's got the gold that they're trying to find. And he does. Um, yeah. But uh, he takes them to the hidden fortress of the movie where they can kind of regroup and uh, he can kind of plan and touch base with some of the other survivors of the Akazuki clan, which is an old general and uh, uh, Lady in Waiting is what, they, which, what she's billed as. In that time, we also meet Princess Yuki, and she's, a, she's this kind of elusive figure that the, that the droids, the protagonists, see. And uh, uh, don't worry, I'll, I'll explain why I call them the droids <laughs> later on. Don't worry, guys. Um, but uh, and these lecherous, greedy bastards are immediately wanting to go after the, the, the woman that they see on the hills. Um, and that gets worse as the film goes. No, film, it does get worse. I mean, their, their behavior is very disturbing. But luckily, Yuki-san is very good at defending herself. And the general says, stay away from her. She's mine and uh, leave her alone. But that doesn't work out very well because they find her later on and they try and chase her down and she roughs them up and embarrasses them with her quick feet but she leaves behind her comb and they think that she's the princess that, that everybody's hunting for. There's a big reward for her. They think that she's the princess and they, uh, they're going to, they're going to turn her in. But uh, our hero general says, no, I turned the princess in the other day and they're, they don't believe him, but he shows them the Ryu, the uh, big coins. This comes back later on guys. And in, in a pretty powerful scene, I think the generals turned somebody in. He claims yeah. they don't believe him. One of them goes to town to turn the princess in and they come back. And uh, they find out that whoever he's turned in, they've been beheaded. And there's a, there's a really great acting scene 
by Mifune, who has to kind of, he seems like he's enduring this news. He doesn't say, we don't know why he seems so upset. Whoever he turned in has been beheaded by the y- y- Yamano clan. Yamano clan? Uh, well, um, I think it's in an act of that that he goes and confers with the, uh, the, uh, the lady in waiting. The lady in waiting and his comrades in the cave. And, and then I, th- I think, isn't Yuki's isn't there as well? Right. Everybody's there. Yep. Princess Yuki is there. Um, uh, the, I don't think the old general's there. Really? Okay. Well, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. He's not. Uh, but um, it's at that time that we, the viewer, are actually, it is revealed to us who actually these people are. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think that we suspected it. Yeah. Uh, but well, he, t- he, tells them, he tells them that he's General Rokurota, and they're like, no, you're not. That's a, you're full of shit, is basically what they say to him. And he laughs because he knows they won't, he tells them because he knows they won't believe him. Right, and and but but then um, in the cave, we are all we are all introduced to the actual relationships uh, between the the real heroes of the film. I think the real he, the real heroes of the film, and I'm going to say the nobility, and yeah. I'll explain that in a second as to why as to why I use that term. Um, but then we then understand that that it was all planned that the lady that was beheaded was a decoy. Yep. Who in 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 serious attack of the clones form yeah. absolutely uh, uh, died for the princess yes. and she's not and she's not too happy about it. Sidebar: What Jason just referred to was the film Star Wars: Attack of the Clones, in which the queen Amidala had a group of women who functioned as decoys and passive protectors and sometimes active protectors. But this is what. Rokurota's sister functions as as well in this film. So into the sidebar. The princess isn't happy about it, but right. of course the general isn't happy about it either because it's his sister right. that he turned in. And the princess though lays into the general and thinks it's all awful what they've done. And the lady in waiting is kind of trying to defend the general and defend the actions. And she's like, well, this is what we do for, the, for you, uh, princess uh, uh, Yuki. And she doesn't like any of this. Princess Yuki doesn't. Right, um, yeah. She castigates the general. She castigates all of it. And doesn't she say something about like, this isn't worth doing or something like that? If this is the kind of price we have to pay? The, the, yeah, the, the impression you get, it's actually, I think, a very modern, almost contemporary scene. Yeah. Uh, in, in which the princess makes it very clear that she doesn't want to be part of any of this. She thinks this is all foolishness. Yeah. Uh, and she's very angry uh, at uh, Makabe for yeah. for how he's reacting, and and he doesn't he's as he's very stoic about it. Yep. Um, you kind of get the sense that there is a, a connection of some sort between the two of them. She's yeah. very disappointed. She's very disappointed in him, uh, but she's um, she's dissatisfied. She's unhappy. Yep. With um, with what has occurred, and doesn't uh, there's kind of a distaste on her part. For uh, the politics of all of it. Uh, she says uh, she was 16. I'm 16. She doesn't seem to, she doesn't right. seem to accept that there was a, a reasonable, ex- she doesn't seem to accept that it was right what they did to the general's sister. Well, yeah, and, and, uh, and I think more importantly, the most memorable part of that whole scene is, is you know, she leaves the cave and there's a scene of her looking out over, um, you know, a valley or whatever yeah. and superimposed behind her is the flag yeah. Uh, probably of the clan. I actually, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't notice which which flag was which. Yeah. Uh, but um, there was kind of this sense of she's caught up in all of the politics going back 
hundreds of years, yeah. maybe thousands of years, this cycle of, of, of kind of political uh, machinery that's been going on and on and on and on and on. And she's a part of it. Yeah. And so you kind of get the sense that she's kind of looking out into the future. She's seeing her future because she is royalty. Yeah. And, and that it's just this cycle of pain, cycle of people dying for flags and so forth. I, I think it's a very modern moment. If you look, if you look at it through very contemporary eyes, uh-huh. I think it's a very modern shot uh, in which she, she has this sense, or I think we're given the sense, that she, she's, she has this overwhelming desire to reject that legacy, uh, that future that's been spelled out for her. Well, I think that's right. And, and before that scene, though, and this, is, this is also kind of helps to underscore the, or uh, rather in, uh, increase the power of, of that scene of her, is the general and the lady in waiting uh, are talking about like uh, what just happened and what just transpired. And uh, the lady in waiting is like uh, apologizing to the general. She shouldn't have been so hard on you. It's terrible that her father raised her as a boy um, because he treated what I, what I got by that. I think that's probably a, a clumsy translation, but he probably, what they probably were saying was that she was treated as a boy by her dad. Yeah. It was her only, it was her only child. I, that's what I think they say that in the film. And uh, she's, you know, she, she shouldn't have yelled at you like that. And like, uh, you know, she seems upset, but you know, she's so cold. She doesn't even cry is what she says. She's not even crying. And, and so I, I wondered if Yuki wasn't an intentional thing because they, they see her as kind of this both, oh. well, at least the lady in waiting sees her as a kind of a, a cold, aloof person because she doesn't cry. But, uh, but as she storms out, uh, well, I was, this is well after she stormed out, but the general says, uh, sorry, sorry, the lady in waiting says she didn't even say anything uh, uh, console you about your, the loss of your sister, you know, and you must be in such pain. And the general actually says the, but she's suffering a lot too. She's, she's got to suffer with rebuilding the Akazuki clan. That's, right. that's what she's got to do. And we see Princess Yuki on the mountain and she is bawling. She's trying to hold it together, but she's actually crying pretty hard. And it's probably for the, it's not just for, uh, it's for all the things that you just said, but it's also for uh, Rokurota's sister, you know, Makabe's <laughs> sister. Um, and I, I get the sense that they might have even been friends. I, it, it's never spelled out in the in the in the in the in the text of the movie, but you know, they're well, all royalty, you, you know. Right. I mean, it's not spelled out, but I think that, uh, I mean, at least to contemporary eyes, what what she's mourning is the fact that she lives in a world where someone just like her, their life has to end. Yeah. And, and almost by choice, not even almost by choice, but I mean, um, there was this plan that that girl was basically going to be sacrificed yep. so that uh, so that she could live. And well, it, yeah. it had to be her choice because if she didn't want to do it, at the gate, she could have said, I'm not Princess Yuki. Princess Yuki's back there. Right. Cut right. her head off. Don't cut my head off. That right. could have happened, but it didn't. Uh, and that's the basic setup for the plot. And after that... Uh, uh, they have to get out of there, right? They have to they yeah. have to make the journey. They have to get the gold, and they have to get the princess through the dangerous enemy territory and, and, and into their allies' territory. And this is where, this is where the hidden fortress, absolutely, as uh, I think everyone should know, absolutely imitates one of the most important movies of 1977, <laughs> Smokey and the Bandit. Smokey and the Bandit. How yeah. do you do that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because... Sorry. Um, there are some um, structural similarities. I can, I can go there. 
Um, no, because because uh, it it becomes this story where they are um, they're trying to get through enemy lines, and that's um, and this is where and I know that you've already mentioned droids and George Lucas, yeah. uh, but I, this is probably a good point to actually kind of mention that um, um, George Lucas is often accused of of basically channeling this film yeah. or the original Star Wars, and uh, he has said. He's he's somewhat pled not guilty. Yeah, he has acknowledged. Uh, I I might have watched the same interview as you. I'm sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, but that he acknowledged that the idea of the two main characters that open the film that we discussed, yeah. the ones that you refer to as droids, that he he modeled R two D two and C three P O after them. Yeah, but after but after that, any other similarities are a coincidence. And I kind of jokingly brought up Smokey and the Bandit because I actually think that I agree with him. Um, I, I almost agree with him. I mean, it is, I actually see a lot more similarities between The Hidden Fortress and another George Lucas masterpiece, Willow. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the, that, that, that strikes me as a lot more Hidden Fortress, at least in some ways, than, 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 Star Wars A New Hope, but did you, so we're going to have a little aside before we dive back into the movie. The music cues and the swipes. Um, I, the, yes. So yeah. I'm watch, I was watching this uh, yesterday and today, and I'm watching the intro of the, of the bumbling, greedy peasants who are bickering, and all of the music cues and the swipe edit. So what I mean by swipes is uh, George Lucas uses this method of changing scenes by uh, having, a, uh, having the scene kind of swipe, one scene swipe out as another one swipes in. I'm making hand gestures like you people can see me. But, but so, so, so imagine like a, a scene, be, uh, like a picture moving in from one side of the frame and pushing out the other picture. That's a swipe. And yeah. Lu uh, Lucas uses that a lot in New Hope. And, and he has these like little uh, musical cues uh, that are very similar to this. It's like, dum, 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 dum. And that, a lot there's of, almost uh, that exact cue in this movie. A lot of, uh, uh, with those two characters that you're talking about, uh, Takei and... Um, uh, Tahe and... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, there is a lot of, uh, the cues you're talking about, I think, are on wind instruments. Yeah. Because I think when John Williams did it with Star Wars, you know, you've got bassoons and you've got oboes. And, yeah. uh, and, and there's uh, very slight little cues, not necessarily melodies. No, and no, no. I, just... I, know, I noticed that as well uh, with uh, any scenes with those two characters. Well, it's funny uh, to touch on another film and another composer, another musical guy, the, uh, John Williams, uh, but another film that he did. He uses those same kind of cues for Otis in Superman, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's yeah. just these little, these little humorous musical notes kind of conjoined to, to attach to these bumbling characters. And, uh, but I noticed that right away. Uh, I, what I think Lucas is probably being honest about is that while he might not have taken a whole lot of the story from Hidden yeah. Fortress, he definitely took all of Kurosawa's techniques. That's definitely true. Um, definitely, yeah, I agree with that. But so, so we see a lot of this story from the point of view, not all of it, not exclusively, from the point of view of these two, these two peasants. Um, and that's an interesting perspective as we have, these, we have moments of real high adventure, 
that these two are not at all involved in. When the high adventure happens, uh, these two are really cringing individuals, um, very cowardly. Um, when they first meet uh, Makabe, uh, our general hero, he sits down at their fire like he belongs there. And the, the peasants try and get one another to bully him away. And, uh, and like uh, um, uh, Matashichi is like, he pokes uh, his buddy Tahe and he points to the, uh, uh, to the new interloper. And uh, his friend's like, basically says, hey. And then Toshiro Mifune turns around and gives him like dagger, dagger eyes looks. And then uh, Tahe says, Kumban. Uh, which is good evening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he, he 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 immediately drops his aggressive tone, and then and then uh, and then he pokes his buddy, and his buddy says, "Hey!" And then again with the dagger look, and then the other peasants like, uh, uh, "Cold bite, huh?" <laughs> and they, their backbones evaporate every every single time. Anyway, so this crew has got to get across the uh, across these perilous borders. You just mentioned the scene at the at the fire, and actually, one of the things that occurred to me. Because I know everybody, okay, everybody, I've talked to people before who've watched this movie and say, yeah. hey, it's, you know, it's Star Wars, it's George Lucas. Yeah. But actually, one of the things that, in, in watching this film, that struck me, and I do know that Akira Kurosawa was very interested in, in Western art. Yeah. He was interested in, in Western drama, Western film specifically. Yeah. But I think that it's because of The Throne of Blood, which... For, for listeners who don't know, is an adaptation of Macbeth, right? Yep, yep. Sidebar. Titled Throne of Blood for the English-speaking market, Kurosawa's 1957 Kumonosu Jo is a brilliant adaptation of Macbeth. You should see it. So endeth the sidebar and this mini-verdict. Akira Kurosawa learned quite a bit from the bard. I find uh, one of the things that really struck me about this film is how a lot of the dynamic between the quote-unquote lower class and the nobility. Yeah. And how our, 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 our two friends, Matashishi and, and Tahe, are they're greedy. They're very impulse-driven. They're not necessarily villains, but... No, no. But, but, but uh, I mean, I think that we understand them. I mean, we, the viewer, we understand their motivations, and they're very funny. We don't see them as villains, but they are certainly problematic. And one of the things that struck me is that in some of Shakespeare's plays, not all of them, but in some of Shakespeare's plays, you do find this dynamic. Yeah. You, fi- you find the, the, the um, I guess we'll call them the peasant class, for want of a better term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're kind of comic relief. They're not poorly written characters, no. but they're but they're they're very comic relief. And and I think that in some Shakespeare plays, that you know the, the, um, that that even those characters will speak mainly in prose, whereas the nobility will speak in more of a poetic meter. Okay. Uh, not that that's necessarily done here, or that we would even know that because yeah. we only see the translation. We see we see the subtitle on the screen. And I'm very skeptical that we can make any judgments about that because that's just the way translation is. Absolutely. But I really think that, that, that there's, something, there's something Shakespearean about these characters to me. I think that that's right. I, I, I'm glad you noticed that. I, I would not have gone there. Uh, because I'm not as familiar. Uh, I, I didn't think about that. I'm not as familiar with Shakespeare. I've read, I've read quite a few plays, but I don't know them. And I don't know their motifs and their, and their uh, story devices. Certainly that's something that's going on here. And Shakespeare would use that to kind of 
be a subtle commentary about the class yes. structures of England and stuff like that. And that's happening here. I mean, Matushichi and uh, Tahe are, are, you could see them as terrible people. They certainly behave mm-hmm. badly a lot of the time. But these are also two people who are trying to scrabble out uh, a life in a world that is just not structured for people who don't have power. And so everything they're trying to do is is almost understandable, even when they take, they don't really have a reason to trust the general, you know, they think he's going to cheat them because that's what they would do to him probably. You know? Right, right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. But they don't have a lot of integrity, but uh, they're not really in a, in a class that can afford it, I guess, is maybe, is, is somehow, I, is how I look at them sometimes. Um, no, I see, I think that's absolutely right. And um, however, Shakespeare, and in this case, Kurosawa, yep. decide that the viewer knows that. And they end up writing them for laughs. Yeah. And and I think that's what Kurosawa intended. I was actually surprised that the line, the, the through line for these, for those two characters, pretty much remain the same. You know, yeah. they're really. I mean, I don't think that. And we'll get to that. Yeah. But I don't think there's really a redemption moment for that. No, I mean, not really. It's sort of. It's sort. It's almost Hawksian. What happened? Howard Hawks used to pull this kind of. We'll get to it later on, but, but <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this term out at you because you guys are gonna hear. If you guys listen to us a lot, you're gonna hear things like Hawksian, and when we say <laughs> yeah. that, we we're referring to Howard Hawks, and he would sometimes just like have a key character moment happen in a flash just to close up the show and and leave viewers, I think, with kind of a satisfied feeling. Sometimes it doesn't work, but in this film, it it it, it it's okay. Um, oh yeah, I agree. Yeah. But as they're moving across this landscape, a lot of interesting things happen. Our, our quartet of, and they have to carry all this gold. They're carrying this gold hidden in wood. So they look like they're taking, uh, they look like they're probably charcoal makers or something like that. So they have like a lot of uh, uh, wood on their horses and on their uh, backs. Through this, they have to get the princess from point A to point B and then to point C, but they can't let everybody know that she's a princess. They can make her look like a boy. They can make her look like a peasant girl. But she, she will have an affectation of nobility, which is what they right. worry about. So, so they come up with this idea of making her mute. And uh, this is a kind of a brilliant scene where she is uh, kind of headstrong uh, and she doesn't take direction well. And uh, there's a big scene where they say, if you tell her to go right, she'll go left. And if you say go left, she'll go right. Yeah. And, and the general tries to uh, use some reverse psychology on, on her and like, well, this will be too difficult. You can't, you, you, you know, it's, it's really hard to play mute. You know, it's agony. You won't be able to do it. And she's just like, whatever, man, look, I can see through your reverse psychology, but she's like, you're not going to do, I, I'll go ahead and pretend that you fooled me and I'll play mute. But she basically says, she claims that she's not going to speak for the rest of the trip but she she goes back on that she but. doesn't keep that promise at all she doesn't, yeah. she doesn't, i i thought i thought there would there's going to be some kind of funny moments where she was going to let a lot of bad things and good things and funny things happen because she wasn't going to answer any of his questions right right but she doesn't she doesn't she doesn't hold to that promise i guess she's kind of impetuous but she's one of the most noble of the characters that we have in this film but what's the what's the first thing that happens? What's the first thing that the the bums that I call them bums, but that's not fair. The peasants they, they do something that that uh, causes trouble right away. Well, they're at the border. Okay. And uh, the general's going to go scout the border. Yeah. And it oh, really that's right. Well, no, it really shocks me because he trusts them. Yeah. Yeah. So frequently. Yeah. And he tries. I go. You, you stay here. And I'll go scout, and she's and, and and the princess sits down, and she's just she's just looking straight ahead. Yeah. And they decide, hey, this is our chance to you know get rid of him. 
Yeah, they're going to so, so the peasants are – so this is a moment where the guy crossed the border, and the peasants, after he leaves, they say, okay, well, now we can ditch him. He's gone. And uh, go yeah. ahead, go ahead, keep going. Well, no, and, and then um, um, they try to cross the border without him. They, they fail miserably because they're sighted immediately, which, yeah. of course, ruins everything because now everyone is wise to the fact that there's these – these people trying to get across the border. So they created more problems than they're worth. And the princess is only mute kind of then. Almost like she's trying to make a point. Yeah, 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 yeah. That this is all foolish. You never should have had me be mute. Yeah. And um, so um, then they have to figure out how to get into the village. Yeah. Which uh, the general does come up with a a, a neat plan. Yeah, yeah. um, uh, Quite worthy of Burt Reynolds, I would say. I would say. yeah. Um, to, uh, to to get passed by by saying, hey, I found this gold. Yeah, he says, I found you know, this gold in this wood. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, and he, uh, so that's, that is a brilliant scene. I'm surprised I forgot about it. But yeah, so he goes to the garden and says, hey, look, I, I found this gold. It's in this wood. And they take him to the to the head magistrate. Look, and this is a Smokey and the Bandit scene. Okay. Because he, it, right? Yeah, he yeah, totally, yeah. very Burt Reynolds, Look, man, I deserve a reward. He's totally playing it off. Oh, yeah. And then you have the the magistrate, or or uh, I can't remember what his official title is, yeah. but he's he's very arrogant, and and he's like, oh, you know, you dumb peasant, you don't deserve anything. And he's very satisfied with himself. Yeah, I'm actually on. I'm ahead of the game. Yeah. I'm ahead of these stupid peasants. And it's only Suzuki. I'm yeah. Yeah, and it's only after the fact that he discovers that, you know, you need to be on the lookout for, uh, right? For yeah. three men and a girl. And he and he he has this moment where he's like, oh, shit. Oh, and, and, yeah. and he plays that really well. But one of the other neat things is how brave uh, Rokurota Makabe is in that scene because he pushes the demand for a reward yeah. as far as it'll go. And this 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 kind of... This kind of daring play comes up again in the film uh, in a very key scene, which we'll get to in a bit. But he basically creates such a scene and keeps on creating a scene until they throw him out of the camp. Right. And, you know, the reason the scene is so good is that I actually, you know, I saw what he was doing. Yeah. You know, he, he's saying, oh, I'm going to sit here until I get my reward. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, that's brilliant because, because you're making such a scene. That, that that there's no that there's there's no way they're going to believe that you're faking. Mm-hmm. But then there came a moment where I started thinking, "Ooh, don't push this too far." Yeah, you know they might call your bluff. And and then I realized, you know, but you know, it, it's just a movie. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, that's true. And, yeah, but, but I, I think you could even you could get away with it even more though, even if it was if it was a more serious movie. This movie this movie is a classic adventure, I think, and that it has a lot of humor. But it has a lot of high drama and uh, yeah, uh, hot high adventure. But Rokurota knows that knows that guy on that bench, that magistrate. He yeah, knows yeah. that arrogant guy because he's a general. He's seen people like that. Then our our heroes are on the way, and they make it out. And and like Jason just said, the the gen, the, the magistrate uh, finds out very quickly. Be on the lookout. And yeah. the actor, I don't know who the actor's name is, uh, but. He portrays going from the heights of Cloud Nine <laughs> to the uh, latrine uh, ditch, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, and we'll see why it's bad to fail the leaders of the Yamana clan later on. Anyway, our heroes make it out, and they make it to the village. And this is a nice moment for us to see more of the character of Princess Yuki. They 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 stay at an inn, 
very quickly they lose their their best horse, which was which was going to be they're using it as a pack horse to carry all this wood. But a very wealthy samurai comes up to uh, Rokurota and says, "Here, I'll pay you for this horse." And Rokurota doesn't want to do it because they needed to haul the gold, and right. uh, and they're like, uh, "The guy's like, look, it's too good of an animal to be a pack horse. Here, you can buy five horses." with the money I'm giving you now. Thanks, bye. And he just takes the guy's horse because the general's playing a peasant and that's how things would work. You can't um, cause a fuss, yeah. Yeah, and so so he's got to figure out how to do that. And he's he's at first really worried about this, but it will come it will come to good fortune later on. Uh, but uh, so Yuki's seeing life in Yamana, uh, Yamana, uh, Yamana village. And one of her people is being, uh, is a farmer is trying to uh, uh, prostitute her out. He's bought her. She was a Azuki uh, a person on Azuki lands. She's a young girl. And this really upsets Princess Yuki. Uh, as this farmer's like, you know, talking about like, you know, uh, trying to get people to sleep with her. Uh, this, this poor uh, refugee from Akizuki lands. And the farmer is such a lecherous person, and uh, he tries to buy Yuki. Oh, it's a very upsetting scene, actually. Yeah. I mean, actually, I mean, I think we're repulsed by it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then just accidentally, not because the peasants are our are, are protagonists, uh, are, are sort of protagonists, uh, Matashichi and uh, 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 Tahe are upset by what the farmer's doing when he's trying to buy Yuki. They're like, oh, she's mute, guy. Why do you want to buy her? And the farmer is immediately, oh, I don't want to buy her. You know? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and he walks off. But then Yuki uh, drags the general around and says, you got to buy. you got to buy that girl out. She's not going to stay here anymore. And this is kind of a, a, a moment where we see Yuki, like, no, I won't have my people suffer like this. And it's, she's a very, she seems like a very good leader. Uh, Makabe even is like, we can't do this. And, and, but her, her integrity, her good nature does benefit them in the end because it changes the composition of their group. Um, but Makabe is like, your kindness is going to get us hurt. It's going to put us in danger. And she's like, fine, I don't really care about that. Buy her back. And, and he does, he does that. Well, I see Jason has got a no, no, no. look on his face and I, I'm going to, I'm going to see the, the floor. <laughs> Well, actually, I, I think it's a good time to actually talk about uh, her, uh, Misa Uehara, uh, Uehara. Then, who plays uh, Princess Yuki. Yeah. Um, you know, I haven't said this yet. She's fantastic in this. Movie. She is. She, and in fact, one of the things that struck me about her, and I think that it it says a lot for me as a, you know being used to watching modern films, yeah. is I mean, she's such an athletic figure. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's actually several scenes where she kind of has her hands on her hips and she almost looks like she could play a superhero. A yeah, yeah, yeah. Superhero. And uh, um, just her, her look, uh, you know, uh, the way she appears in front of the camera. She's actually an amazing presence. And I, so as a modern movie watcher, I, I almost expected, well, she's going to be, she's going to be an action figure or an action hero in this film. Yeah. Like, there's going to be a point where she's going to show her stuff. Now she, now throughout the film, she definitely has a, a commanding presence. She's able to be physically threatening to certain people. Yeah. But I actually, I think that she's unbelievable in this movie. Oh yeah. She, 
her her presence, her her um, uh, her movements, her acting, her just just how how she looks visually, her character and how it's written. She's one of the best characters in this movie today. That character would probably have a good fight scene. Well, yeah, yeah, uh, she, yeah. The, 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 she never gets the action beat that a modern director would give her. The most we get is when she embarrasses the the peasants who are leading them out of, of harm's way. And she's great in that. Though. Oh, she's I mean, great. And she commands the scene. Absolutely. But one of the ways in which she does what you're saying is she is affecting, I think, the stance of nobility. Like, she has a lot of power in the scenes. And she's a very fearless character. But it's not because she's tough. She mm-hmm. may be. We don't ever see that. Um She's not necessarily physically tough, but mentally she is quite tough. Yes. Um, and and we see her poise as a leader when she leaves to go have her cry in the earlier in an earlier scene. She's yeah. She's not crying in front of them, not because she's cold, but because that's an imposition that leadership has put on her. I can't cry in front of these people because I'm the clan leader now. That's what she is. You know, and they and they believe that she's never cried. Exactly. So obviously, so obviously she's she's kept that up. Absolutely. Going back uh, in a period that we haven't seen as a viewer. Absolutely. And so she carries herself as a person very confident in her position, but also in her ideas and in her convictions. Um, and I mean, it obviously inspires the loyalty of of people like her core uh, nobles um, when they leave the hidden fortress. Uh, when they try and go back, when it first looks like, there's a moment where they try and go back to the Hidden Fortress because it looks like they're not going to be able to escape. And it's in flames because it has been found. And the small contingent of Akazuki uh, clansmen went ahead and had a fight to the end, and they made yeah. a big show of their end so that, so that our heroes would know not to come back. But, right. but, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about what an amazing actress uh, Uehara uh, is. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, and she does it without having to be necessarily physical. Obviously, she she carries herself very well in these scenes. But anything else you want to say about that? Or well, no. I mean, I mean, I, I agree with that. And actually, I like the idea of thinking because she was raised as a boy, as, as you said. I like the idea that she is very physically capable. Yeah. But her character is so well written, we don't have to see it. Absolutely. We don't have to see it. I I I would have liked to see it. Hell but, yeah. But we don't have to because she she is fantastic. She absolutely owns the camera in any scene that she's in, in, in my view. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, when she's yelling at Toshiro Mifune, uh, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, not, it's not emotional yelling. It's, not, it's very much a superior yelling at their subordinate, you know what I mean? Right. Um, it's, I know it's brilliant. It's brilliant. But I want to say that her, her good deed, uh, her leadership, does serve them well because later on, when they leave the village with this, uh, with this woman that they've saved, this young woman who they've bought out of uh, bondage, um, when they, and it's good that they lost the horse too, because yeah. when the patrol comes, uh, this is a great scene. So, so our heroes are going down the road, they've lost their horse, they've picked up a new, a new person that they have to feed and care for, um, who seems very timid at first, but this, this, this person that they've, they've, they've 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 saved from prostitution uh they try and say go leave you don't you don't need to come with us but she's not going anywhere she's right she realizes this 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 character realizes that that it's the princess yuki 
for one, right. and that this princess has saved her, you know, gone out of her way. And so that, that bought like so much loyalty um, that will also cause trouble later on. Right. Uh, um, but so our heroes are going down the road and a big samurai patrol is oh, looking for this them. Is great. And, and it's funny because not only do they have, not only does the general have to manage himself, he's got to keep Matashichi and Tahe from breaking and running, which is, which I think is their first instinct in any situation because they immediately start, this is the sound that Mata, Matashichi and uh, Tahe make. Oh, <laughs> they, they are immediately in panic mode whenever they see somebody with, with real power in their society. Um, well, but you know, it actually should be, I mean, as you pointed out, uh, uh, Makabe had, had revealed to them who he was. They didn't believe him. Yeah. But Makabe does not have a sword at this point. No, he's just got what I think is a, uh, the knife he's carrying is called a natta, and it's a Japanese bushcraft knife. I think, we never see it. But, but we, the viewer, like, look, the instant that he first appears on camera, yeah. you see him as an imposing figure. Oh, absolutely. And you see him as an imposing figure throughout the film. There's no doubt about that. But, um, but he's not had a sword in his hand yet. No, no, no. And so, so it's something that even we, the viewer, are kind of in doubt. Well, what the hell are they going to do? Yeah. If, if uh, a a patrol or anybody um, stops them. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think that for a while we're almost as scared as our two little friends. Well, yeah. But yeah. but one of the things that that had to be frustrating in the mind of the character of Makabe is that the way through that, that kind of trouble is with confidence. Yes. You know, and, and, these, and they don't have it. They never have it. Anytime yeah. they're, I think maybe because they always know they're up to no good. Right. Right. And they, they seem to think that everybody's going to see that they're up to no good, but they're always ready to bolt and run. <laughs> and, uh, and, but what they needed to do was behave like they, they, they knew where they were going and they, and that they had a specific purpose. Um, but somehow they make it through that because they don't look like the people that the samurai are searching for. They, they ride up to them. They're like, have you seen uh, three men uh, and a woman with horses? And now it's three men and two women, no horses yeah. and, and, and a cart. And so, so, they, so they ride on. They ride on. And this is something that's very brilliant about the film. Okay. They ride on, but they figure it out oh, and they come and they oh, come okay. back. And this is this the um, first big action scene. This is the first big action okay. scene. They come back, and of course, our 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 uh, terrible team. Ah, yeah, they want to run, and this is the first big action scene in which Makabe um, does obtain a sword. Yeah. Oh shit! Takes it right Sorry. from one of the guys. Excuse me. No, this is actually Return of the Jedi. Okay. Um. Um. Look, there's two more of them. You know, and uh -huh. I, I, we've got to stop them because they're going to report. I actually, I didn't think of this. I just did. Sidebar. What Jason is referring to is the iconic speeder chase scene from Return of the Jedi that takes place on Endor. Um, I'm sure you guys all know about it. I don't have to say much, but I thought it needed to be highlighted. So into the sidebar. Okay. So um, Maccabi overcome. I think there's three. There's several. There's several. Three or four. Three or four guys. Yeah. Three or four warriors, all armed, and they're yeah. and they're on and they're mounted. Makabe takes care of one of them. Takes his sword. Yeah. And then the the one that he overcomes tells the other two go report. This is them. Yeah. 
Makabe gets on the horse with the samurai sword, Jedi lightsaber, yeah. and goes and takes the two of them out. Yeah. This I just amazing. thought of that. Well, this is I I was watching this scene yesterday and uh, just was amazed at the the dynamism of the scene. This could have happened in a modern uh, a modern cinema scene, but so it's a great action scene. But it's, it's also beautiful, yeah. Um, but it's also done. I mean, it's the moving cameras moving people, people on horseback, but still adhering to Kurosawa's long shot philosophy. Yes, absolutely. Um, but, but on top of that, I mean, this is Toshiro Mifune on a horse. I don't think he grabs the reins at all. I didn't know. I didn't notice. He, he holds the sword up. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's riding, you know, I think the phrase is hell for leather. I don't know what it means. Feel free to write us in and explain that phrase to me. <laughs> but he's riding with his sword above his head, ready to cut the first rider down. And he's guiding, he must be guiding the horse with his legs. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's, I mean, this is, I mean, these horses now in a modern show, you would have a guy on a horse like thing, but that is really a barrel. And the guy would be on a, on a, on the back of a truck, but, but with the long shots, you can't do that. You can't really put a stuntman in there. Um, and these horses are flying. Like it's not, yeah. the camera's not sped up. It's just a great scene. And with, with the added benefit of, of course, uh, Mifune, our hero, being on the horse, doing the scene himself. And he chases them, kills them, cuts them both down. He, he kills he ends them. Up in the enemy camp. He ends up in the enemy camp. And in what I think is the, the best scene in the, it's the best shot scene in the movie yeah uh, it, it, it's the and it's and to me it's the central point of the movie this is the film that uh all the rising action was kind of leading to yeah, in which he comes in and the way that kurosawa lets us know makabe's um reputation yeah you, you have this army absolutely makabe's absolutely outnumbered he's he's not worried at all yeah and we have kind of this long shot and we have like a uh, kind of a circle of, of an army yeah. and they all move back yeah. as he comes in when they realize who it is. Absolutely. Um, and uh, it's, oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. Now I want to say something about that uh, before we get to Hyoe uh, uh, Tokoro, uh, uh, Tada, Tado Koro, Hyoe, yeah. uh, that's the opposing general. But I liked that him, surprising himself by running into the soldiers makes some sense because of this mountainous terrain. Like he didn't, I mean, he, the, he rounded a corner and bam, he's in the center of the enemy, his enemies. Yeah. This scene is really crucial. And it's, uh, he rides into the camp and he sees a kind of a, a friendly rival that, that they, they must've kind of been friends, friendly with one another. Their yeah. reputation, their reputations preceded them. Um, before hostilities broke out between the Yamana Yamana clan and uh, yeah, they, Akizuki, uh, they, Akizuki. They did not have a chance to fight in the aforementioned yeah. battle that happened off screen. I yeah, think Hyoe says that. He says, I wish we could have met in, in battle. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, Makabe says, yeah, I wish I could have too. And then who, who proposes the duel? Was it Makabe? I think so, yeah. So he says, let's have a duel. And this is, I think... You say what you want to. You say what you want to say about the duel. I have some ideas, but what did what did you, you you just said it was brilliantly shot. What did you think of the duel overall? What do you think? You said it's an important scene. Tell me what you why you think it's important. Well, I, I, I well first of all, I think um, it's an important scene because the relationship between these two people 
And as you just mentioned, uh, Tarakoro, is that a... It's a, uh, yeah, uh, Shoei... Uh, uh, Tarakoro. If I'm reading my handwriting correctly. Yeah, um, I'm having trouble reading my handwriting too. This has been a not... problem we've had, listeners. Reading our <laughs> own handwriting has been a problem we've had since the fourth grade, I think. Uh, if not before. Yeah. Um, but uh, but uh, Tarakoro is um, just introduced. Yep. And um, this this relationship ends up being very central to the film. Yep. Um, or at least the climax of the film. So um, he challenged them to a duel. And one of the things that occurred to me right at you know, right when that when that moment occurred was, well, he's outnumbered. You don't have to accept this, but he does. Yeah. So there's obviously respect in the two of them. And um, I, if what you're asking about is the fight itself, yeah. I liked it. Oh, I did too. I, um, and, and, but I'll tell you that, I mean, not only do I think that it's well choreographed, but I like how it starts off with just kind of stalking each other. Yep. Yep. You know, kind of waiting, and 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 I will defer to you when it comes to fight scenes, uh, because uh, you know, I just think you you know more about that. But the thing that that struck me uh, about that is that both these guys know that who they're fighting is very dangerous, yep. and that probably all it will take is one mistake for the other to get a killing blow. So they're both look they're both waiting for some kind of opening. Yeah. And so um, I think the film or that scene that they take a, that Kurosawa takes a lot of time of having them just kind of, you know, size each other up or yeah. stalk each other is the word I would use. And, uh, um, and I kind of like that. I liked how, okay, so, you know, this is going to be, you know, we're looking for a lot of realism here. Yeah. Um, these are two figures who, who know that they're going to test each other. They know this is going to be a very trying encounter and they need to preserve their energy until they know that they have an opening because uh, if they, if they make a wrong move, they're probably dead. Yeah. And um, I, I, so I liked the beginning of it. I liked, and then, and then I think that what happened afterward was, was very well choreographed. Well, um, I did too. Um, going back to the confidence that you talked about that uh, the, the soldiers are intimidating. Uh, Hyoe even says, leave him alone guys. You're no match for him is what he says mm -hmm. about Makabe. And, uh, and he says, we'll pick a weapon and we'll have our duel. And yeah. the swagger that Mifune has when he's testing out the halberds of, uh, of all those people is really something to watch and kind it of admire. Goes, it, it's done in a long shot. Yep. And I think there's three or four that he, uh, well, there's a, there's two or three that he, rejects that we think he, that we think he's going to choose and he ends up rejecting yeah and uh and, and the, the, the disdainful toss of their stat their spear back to them is really wonderful i mean it's a little moment but it's just like that also tells us a lot about the character because he's he's he looks very physical we've most of the movie uh uh Maccabre is wearing shorts uh, yeah. some kind of shorts thing and he's got very muscular legs i mean he's not like a modern action hero who's ripped and chiseled but he, he does look like a capable guy. Um, but we see that swagger. We see him just kind of owning every, like when he approaches them, they, they step back immediately after he takes their spear, you know, to examine it, to see mm. if he's going to use it. And then he throws it back to them. This is shit. I'm not using this. And he finds one that he likes. And then they come to that moment that you're talking about where they're, they're, they're having this halting approach to one another, Hyoe and Makabe. 
And uh, what I liked about that is that it showed how fraught these kinds of encounters would have been. It's not smooth and clean like a, like a Kung Fu costume, ep costume epic period piece, which is very choreographed and looks very choreographed. And that's part of the, that's part of the, the aesthetic of a, of a good Kung Fu movie. This, I think, was actually pretty tightly choreographed, and I'll get to why in a minute. But uh, it doesn't look like it's tightly choreographed. It looks frantic and frenetic and uh, and looks a lot more real than a Kung Fu movie, I think. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, but one of the things that happens a lot with these techniques, that these so these guys have this spear fight and it's really nice and they do a lot of cool things. But Hyoe makes a lot of uh, errors, I think, in the fight. And there'll be moments where, if you watch closely, and I, I did, um, uh, our hero, uh, Makabe, swipes his staff in a way that he did he could have extended his reach a little bit and killed Yoe. Okay. There was a lot of moments where he could have made contact with Yoe. And I think the reason why he didn't kill Hyoe, uh guys, sorry, I just spoiled it there. He doesn't kill Hyoe in this <laughs> duel, but I think the reason why he didn't is because he had to prolong the battle until Hyoe was really defeated, until all of his men had seen that he was defeated. Because he's, he's playing to get out. Yeah. If he kills Hyoe, then he's going to get swarmed. And he, as good as he is, you know, 50 to 1 is, unless you're in a Matrix movie or, you know, you're, you're, you're suddenly, you're, you're suitably superpowered. It, that's, those are long odds, right? Yeah. Unless you've just stumbled into a kindergarten and decided to have a fight with the kindergartners. Um, <laughs> but... But he knows he'll get drugged down, and he, he needs to, to defeat Hyoe in such a way that he can leave. I, that's what I think was going on. And he finally does. He breaks Hyoe's spear, and as he's leaving, his friend wants him to do the honorable thing, help him commit seppuku. He says, hey, because he makes a little, he says, hey, wait, before you go, help me kill myself. Makabe doesn't do it. He says, no. And he probably could have done that and left, too, because I think that Hyoe would have said, let him leave after this. But he doesn't. He says, we'll meet again. And he leaves. I think the I think the princess had kind of rubbed off on him. A I think bit. she had, yeah. We'll meet yeah. again, and he gets back to the princess, and when he does, she immediately lays into him about the the guys. It's stupid that I'm mute. I have to put up with this nonsense. Then she just basically <laughs> rips into these these guys, and like she calls them all. <laughs> she says how awful they are, and uh, and at this point, as she's like just just laying into Makabe about how awful his friends are, um, yeah. they come creeping back oh hey boss <laughs> we we were looking to see if we could get across there we couldn't you know <laughs> right and right. uh uh and then they make their way uh to the uh that's when they, they 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 discover a way through which is there's this big procession of people going to a big fire festival a ritual yeah the ritual and uh like we can sneak in with those guys and we can carry our wood and we can it can look like we're going to uh, to this fire festival, and we'll figure out something from there. Um, that's another great scene. Uh, go ahead. Well, well, I have many thoughts about that. It, it, um, the action scene we just described, if that's the the central action uh, scene, I actually, after reflection, mm -hmm. uh, I actually think the fire scene that you're about to describe, yeah, it's kind of the thematic central moment of the film. Yeah. Um, well. <sighs> So, uh, you know, for, for listeners, what, what ends up happening is um, there's a ritual that's taking place in the area where they're trying to get through, where the people, uh, the people of the area, they all take uh, uh, wood that they've gathered 
and they burn it in a large bonfire and they do a dance around the bonfire and they sing a song about uh i mean i can't remember any of the of the translated lines right now but it's basically about the song is about the the the, uh, the kind of impermanence of life yeah yeah mortality brevity uh, fragility of life yeah right right and uh yet in spite of that they they, they dance yeah and and they they experience joy um, now, General Makabe sees this as an opportunity. Yeah. Let's let's burn our shit. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and they have to because, like, um, they were originally going to go to the thing and then sn- sneak away. But the Yamana, yeah. the Yamana guards are all over the place, and they are looking for somebody to. They're looking they're for somebody to try and escape. Would. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and then also the villagers are like, "Hey, let's burn it!" And of course, our our peasants are like. Uh no, we don't want to go. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. and then the guards are starting to notice and then and then uh uh it's like the Maccabe I think it is Maccabe says burn it, burn it all. And uh he uh the entire cart is thrown into the fire. Yeah. yeah. And and in that in that scene, I mean that's a daring move. Yeah. Because that's all their gold. Oh, I thought so, yeah. I thought what we were going to learn, because it's been a while since I've seen this, I thought we were going to learn the gold wasn't in there. I thought, I, I thought we were going to learn that he had the gold someplace else, you know? Right. But we find out, actually, that the gold was in the wood. But So then they all have to dance and be part of the ritual. And there's a gigantic smile on Princess Yuki's face. Yes. yes. And on Makabe's face, I think. You know, he's a... To the extent that Toshiro Mifune smiles, I'll, I'll yes, say that it's yeah. giant. The, uh, uh, Matashichi and uh, Tahe are not smiling. They are, they are destroyed. They do the dance, but they're not happy about it. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, but Makabe, but especially Yuki is enjoying the dance. Yeah, and we discover why later. Yeah. Um, but I guess I would want to like um, present my ideas about what the film is trying to say. Okay. Because it's very interesting. It actually brought me back to my mid-20s when I was very interested in the writings of Joseph Campbell, yep. which is also a, very much a George. George Lucas also was very interested in Joseph Campbell. So I'm, I'm kind of disproved. You and I are both disproving what I said earlier about Lucas not, uh, you know, uh, uh, stealing from this film more than he did. Uh, but one of the things that really struck me and what made me see this as kind of a film with a certain amount of depth is that Princess Yuki in this dance is kind of, I, I think that she's moved and she's inspired by this idea that life is transitory mm-hmm. and um, 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 all these people, they are celebrating their own mortality by dancing. Yeah. Um, kind of the idea, and Joseph Campbell talked about this, that that, uh, that that life is a dance, and even suffering is a dance. It's something that you engage in, yep. you know. And there's there's ups and there's downs, and um, in the end, it's the dance that matters. Yeah. So Princess Yuki, this is I, I kind of see it as this is the thing that she's been looking for all this time. Yeah. This kind of understanding that um, that all the suffering that she sees, um, which she doesn't like. And, and that she rejects, it's not that it's a good thing, but that it's also something that she can't change. And that what she needs to do is kind of enter into the dance, but that the peasants, the poor, they're part of that dance too. Yep. Nobility, they're, you know, we are part of that dance too. We're all part of the same dance. Yep. And the film does not lay this out 
No. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think the film, I think, I think Kurosawa um, thinks better of the viewer that we need to come to our own conclusions. Yep. But it's actually something that brought me to a, a certain amount of reflection in terms of just what the film was trying to say. And we'll get to that in a little bit, because I think that Princess Yuki, her, her actions at the end of the film... Uh, oh, they, they I think are instructive. They well, they absolutely are, of course, crucial to m moving the plot along. But but uh, the other thing too about that dance and about the, they, the 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 villagers and the celebrants sing about the fragility of life. But in the dance too, and in the smiles and the joy of the people, I mean, there's something too about grabbing and ex and experiencing the joy and beauty of life that we yeah. do get. You know. Like you said, it's not all smiles and and uh, uh, pizza, but uh, uh, but I mean, so the, this this festival is a very profound. It strikes me as a very profound set of ideas. I mean, sure, it's a party, but it's also this uh, celebration in the face of the brevity of life. You know. Yes. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I I just I I can't I can't. I, that's about all I can add to what you've said. I don't I don't think there's. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it's a beautiful scene. It was almost an unexpected scene. I mean, I, I, the, yeah. it's, it's a big musical number. Uh, I mean, not in a sense that it's, you know, they didn't like ramp up the production and yeah, yeah, right. do a big interesting. It's a very, it, 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 it emerges from the film very naturally. It seems very, re the, the, the festival seems very real. The yes. celebration seems very real. Um, Yuki, again, I can't say enough about uh, Uehara's uh, acting in this scene. But the scene also is this is a this is also a drama a period drama and Maccabe knew that they could probably get the gold in the morning, yeah. and so the gold is uh, survived the fire and so they they start picking it up they're picking it up out of the big uh, fire pile the next morning, and Maccabe says look let's just grab this much we've got all we can get uh, I'll, I'll take I'll take as much as I can and uh, I'll take he's going to take more the women take some and. Our, our guides, our peasant guides, take more than they should carry because, uh, I mean, Maccabe has to help them off the ground. Yeah, right? it, sends them, it sends them to their asses, yeah. They're yeah. Like, they fall and uh, it's like, all right, now, come on. And they keep looking back at the gold and they're very frustrated by this. <laughs> yes. But they had to leave some behind. And as they're leaving, I, I get the sense, and I think Kurosawa wants us to get the sense that if it was not for what happens next, they probably could have made it over the border. Um, so our heroes are making pretty good time when Matashichi and uh, Yahe Atahe are like, oh, all that gold's back there. And they go back to get some, to get the rest of it. And it's here <laughs> that their greed almost does them all in because they are shifting around in the fire pit. And uh, some, some uh, Yamana guards say, what are you guys doing? And they, they don't have an answer. They don't want to speak. <laughs> they are, they immediately, they look exactly like kids with their hands caught in the candy jar. And they, they do a little obsequious bowing. They don't say, they don't say that we're doing nothing. We're not, they just kind of start moseying off without acknowledging anything except to bow. Right. And, and the guards start kicking around in the dust, kind of curious. And instead of continuing with their slow walk away, when the guards turn back and look at them, they are hauling ass into the forest. And so immediately the guards kick up the alarm. And that's how 
the greed of, of Matashichi and uh, Tahe draw the Yamana clan back to our heroes who are, who are getting free and clear, you know? Yeah. Well, go yeah. ahead. Take, take it away for a little bit. Yeah. Well, they, um, uh, I, I think at this point the film becomes uh, even more thrilling because oh, suddenly yeah. uh, the army is right on their heels. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's kind of close as to whether or not they're even going to make it. And of course um, they, they don't. They don't. But there's some uh, stuff that happens here. They get pinned down, and Makabe says, "All right, I'm going to run, and you guys, you guys get away." And he does a thing that is pregnant with significance. Before he is about to make his run, he takes out his wakazashi, which is the Japanese short sword or the the smaller sword of the the pair of swords that the samurai carries, and he hands the wakazashi to Princess Yuki. Yeah. And it's not explained what he means. For her to do with that it's not to fight if they get hemmed in she's to kill herself is what is what he's saying here oh whoa you know that's right but you know that is a um uh, is this another smoky and the bandit reference you about no 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 although i i, I do have and dom deloise was about to kill himself <laughs> i do have some explaining to do when it comes to that comparison but Actually, um, if you've ever seen Stagecoach, John yep. Ford, uh, at the very end of the film, I think we might have talked about this at one point. You might have forgotten about it. Yep. But when, um, when the stagecoach is uh, in the final scenes, um, John Carradine is still in the stagecoach with the female protagonist. I can't remember the actress. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're all about to be overtaken. And there's a close-up of... Uh, John Carradine taking the, uh, he's got a revolver and he's got one bullet left and he looks at her and the idea is he's going to kill her yeah. in, the, in the event that they, so I think that, cause I mean, uh, for listeners, Kurosawa was, a, and Max mentioned, you mentioned this, um, Kurosawa was an incredible admirer of John Ford's films. Oh yeah. And uh, so I wonder if that's, actually kind of the feel that he was going for it might have been it's also something that that would fit perfectly in this period in japan like rather than get caught by your enemies and suffer a loss at their hands better to take right. your own life rather than let your enemies and who knows what they might do to you uh you know uh but so he's so makabe is about to run and the woman they to distract the soldiers who are firing matchlock rifles at them right and the woman the the woman that they bought who wouldn't leave them and who also early, in an earlier scene protected the sleeping princess from the depredations of uh, Matashichi and uh, Tahe. Uh, they were about to be very bad men uh, with the sleeping princess, but uh, our, our, the, this girl, I can't remember her name. I can't remember what the character's name. No, she has not lady. Lady in waiting was in, was her name too. Okay, okay, so um, so uh, or not she, lady in waiting, but like the slave or uh, yeah, yeah. freed slave, yeah, whatever. She sees what these guys are about to do. I'm sorry to jump back a, a few scenes, but she picks up a rock and is basically this is how timid our our protagonist droids are. This small woman picks up a rock and threatens to kill them, and they they she has them cowering in a corner until Makabe returns. Um, 
Anytime they make a move to do anything, she raises the rock like she's going to knock their heads. Uh, you know, she's going to crack their heads open. <laughs> she would have. Um, yeah, you yeah. see that because she is so loyal to the princess who saved her that instead of letting Makabe run, I think that this woman realized that she has a better, the princess has a better chance with Makabe than with me. So she yeah. leaps over their shelter and runs to try to be the distraction. And Yuki, I don't know, Yuki says something, and Makabe jumps over the, uh, the, their barrier against the rifles to save this woman, this, this peasant, this, I guess she was a former slave. Um, she's shot, um, and he picks her up, and now the three of them are, are leaving. Before they leave, though, they're abandoned by the droids. Who escape. Um, they escape. And uh, they leave, and it's the only time they ever, it was the only time during this part of the adventure that they ever hear Princess Yuki uh, uh, say anything, because they're about to leave, and she says, uh, I think she says sayonara, and they stop, and they're like, who said that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And then they, they run off, and they abandon their companions, and uh, then uh, Makabe and uh, uh, Princess Yuki and the slave, uh, former slave woman, uh, try and escape and they don't, they don't make it away. They get caught. Um, but I thought that that was neat. Uh, as Makabe had said earlier that your, your kindness is going to get us in trouble or it's going to come around and bite us in the ass. But he jumps over the log to save the girl without a thought. Yeah. And see, this is where, you know, I, um, during the fire dance and I'll bring this up again before, before, especially in the final scene. Could you repeat that again? I didn't quite hear it. Um, um, I'll bring this up again in the final scene, but when we were just uh, talking about the fire scene, I mentioned Joseph Campbell. Yeah. You know, I, I mentioned, uh, you know, the, 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 the impermanence of life and, and that's what the, that's what the dance was about. Yeah. Um, but one of the other things that Campbell talked about um, was compassion that, uh, you know, that existing in the dance of life, that yeah. there's uh, uh, that compassion is more important than anything. And I think that there are certain moments in this film, and Princess Yuki is definitely the leader in this, where compassion becomes the primary, um, the primary characteristic that the heroic figures utilize that actually brings them above just being mere nobility, yeah. just being mere figures who, well, you know, I'm, I, I hold power. Yeah. And um, you just described that scene where uh, he, he does, he risks his life for her, yeah. but then they're captured, but then we end up having another moment uh, of compassion from a former enemy. Yeah, well, it's interesting because they get caught and they're uh, Makabe, the peasant and Princess Yuki are all chained up in a, a, a little guardhouse and uh, waiting to their, their execution. And uh, this is when, he, uh, Hyoe comes to visit. He wanted to see them before they were executed or before they were taken away because he's suffered a bit. And, yes. and at first he's, well, he, he, he confronts Makabe about letting him live because he's now got like this giant scar across his face um, from where his Lord beat him so badly that it left a scar for losing a duel to, uh, to Makabe. And, uh, he's very bitter about it at first. And yeah. he, he, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he, he's 
complaining and he, he says, you let me live with this dishonor. And, you know, he's just had this rant. And here's another moment where Uehara, who plays Yuki, gets to shine because she's having none of this. She basically uh, lays into him about how, how, how silly he's letting himself be about a kind gesture from a, from a friend or, a, you know, at least a honor, an honorable rival. She basically, I mean, she stalls him out. He had a moment uh, where he's really mad and then he just shuts up. And then she yeah. says to Makabe, and she's like, hey, it's okay. Don't sweat it too much. I had a good time. This was, this was a great journey for me. Yeah, she even okay. used that. She even used that. I love seeing both the ugliness and right, the beauty yeah. of yeah. of life, and seeing the all, all the people. The I feel so bad for her her new friend, the the woman. She is continuing in the corner. This scene is amazing, by the way, where Yuki has her big speech. Her friend is continuing to melt in sadness that uh, her friend is tied to this, but they're all tied to post. Uh, and their postures are probably meaningful. Uh, Makabe is, uh, his head is down. He's, he's failed. He feels bad about that. The woman uh, who, is, who tried to defend Yuki is also depressed, but she is broken because this wonderful person that she obviously loves as a lord and leader uh, is going to die. Uh, she is crumpling because this is probably the first person in many years, in, in a long time, who's shown her like, love and affection and she didn't have to um but that poor slave is just like melting but proud in the center of these three is yuki she's not she is unbowed by the whole circumstance then she starts singing the song from the fire festival and this is a perfect example of playing out a scene she's doing a lot of talking and then there's three other great actors also non-vocally acting the uh guy who plays hyoe stands almost perfectly still throughout probably a five minute scene. Yeah. And I just thought, well, he doesn't turn. We don't see him. We just have to, we just have to see what's going through his head, through his body language from behind. I don't, I mean, there's, I can't think of too many great scenes like that. I mean, I mean, I mean, would you have anything to add to that scene? I mean, I just think it's stunning. I think it's a stunning scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. No, I, I agree with that, of course. And, and it's done, I think, like, from a... It's another long shot. Yeah, another long shot, because you see everybody. I think everybody's in frame. That is a great scene, and it actually... I mean, really, this is the scene that sets up the ending of the film. It does. Um, because this is the big character development. Uh, from here on out, everything's going to be about resolution. Yep, yep. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't have much to add from what you just said. I mean, I think... I agree with you. I think that's a great scene. And so, and that proceeds. Uh, we get a we get a couple more resol- We get we get more of these resolution shots because this is a long film, but it moves really quick. But I agree. It has a lot to wrap up at the end. The uh, uh, Matashichi and uh, Tahe uh, try and get a reward for <laughs> the capture of the generals, and then there and uh, the Yamana like he fools. You fools, we found the gold and we got them. Get out of here. You know, again, yeah. uh, they're foiled uh, in getting rich and their, and their integrity is also un, uh, again revealed. They're not, they're, they never became friends with this group of people they traveled with. It's never resolved. I, I, I kind of referred to that earlier yep. um, at the very beginning. Um, I, I actually expected that there would be some point where there would be some kind of redemptive moment. 
yeah. in a in a modern film that would happen. Yeah, but but really they are permitted to be themselves. The whole yeah finish. throughout the entire film, uh, with with one little change at the end. Um, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Um, well, we might, I might argue with that, but go ahead. Uh, so so they don't get their money. They pout. I love the two of them pouting. Uh, it is very funny when uh, yeah they uh, they are defeated and then they they look like I swear I said earlier kids with their hands in the candy jar I mean they look like that after every defeat yes the, yeah. the, the punished kid um, but uh, so then our heroes are getting they're gonna get the next day they're gonna get taken to uh, uh, the y- Yamana clan to probably all be executed this is the great moment where uh, Hyoe. I think he's seen a real leader. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's seen how good lords treat their vassals, right? Yeah. And he starts singing the song of the fire right, festival. Yeah. He scares the horses that are laden with the Akazuki gold away. And they, they go heading toward the allies land that through the gate that will lead them to uh, their, the Akazuki allies. And yeah. then he does a thing that would have probably been really hard for somebody in his position to do in a real in in real history, but he changes sides, yeah. and he f- fights uh, his his own people off. He frees Makabe, Yuki, and the the slave, and uh, and they say, "Come along with us. You don't have to die. Come on." And he's like, "Okay." And before this is kind of a, a pretty telling thing, I think, and and. Uh, before he leaves, he's like, "Forgive this traitor," and he and he leaves. Yeah, right? yeah. And uh, and so all of them ride off into the sunset, and as they're riding away, Makabe says, "Have you ever thought about being a dread pirate, Roberts?" <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but he, they ride away, and uh, they got to go catch the gold, the horses with gold, and they're on the other side of the border, which uh, pretty quickly I think they're pretty safe because they don't get pursued through that gate. Right. Um, right, right, and uh, and so whatever whatever confidence the y- Yamana had about uh, fighting the Akazuki, they didn't want to get in a, a, a fracas with the the allies of the Akazuki. But it's in this moment where uh, our peasant droids find the gold horses, and they get caught again with all this gold. They get caught by the Hayakawa. Well, actually, I'd like to back up for a second because okay. actually um, there is a moment in the scene that you just described where um, uh, General uh, Tokodoro, or, uh, Tadakoro, mm-hmm. um, when, uh, when he, right before he makes the decision to be a traitor, yeah. um, he looks out through the gate that you're talking about and sees kind of the wide, oh, yeah. almost, almost like prairie-like uh, uh, skyline and so forth yeah yeah. and to me as a viewer that kind of stated to me you know and he has has that song in his you know in his head he's perceiving freedom oh i bet yeah the freedom to make the choice that he wants the freedom to choose the people that he cares about which he cares about them yeah yeah. because these are the people specifically uh makabe who who showed compassion to him who relented and even though he was mad at him for it he suddenly sees a new possibility. Yeah. Instead of being mad at him, to to be grateful and that well, this is my friend, yeah. and this is someone that I'm now I'm going to save 
and I'm going to go off with them and live with my friends and support my friends. Yeah. Kind of this, kind of this almost revolutionary way of, of well, living. I, I mean, it would have definitely been uh, revolutionary for Hyoe. I mean, like, uh, I think he was certainly confronted. The character seems like he was confronted with that vision of you were like, this is a brief life. Yeah. Which she throws in his face and, you know, we've just got a few moments. You yeah. know, what, yeah. why reject kind? I mean, she's basically saying something like, why reject kindness? You know, why, be mad? why are you mad about this? But you're right. I think that he is seeing freedom in a new way. Even, I don't think he necessarily thinks he's leaving that hillside that day. I think he thinks he's going to die. Right. Because I, 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 I bet he didn't expect for them to say, hey, come on. What are you, come on. What are you waiting for? Yeah. yeah. You know? And yeah. Uh, let's blow this thing and go home. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> One of the things that is kind of a, th it's a little moment, but when they say that, his face really does brighten. He yes. has a big smile on his face. And he's like, yeah, I'll do that. And yeah. th that's when they go. A lot of things are wrapping up fast, but I think it's all pretty well done. Um, oh, no, I, I think it's extraordinarily well done. Um, uh, you're right that it's wrapping up fast, but the, char uh, the character development is done very effectively. The next time we see the peasants, I think they're being presented to the the queen or the the yeah. she, she, the, the, the Yuki in her all of her form uh, formal regalia, uh, and Makabe looks different too. Uh, Hyoe they have seen, or maybe they haven't seen, but they've seen samurai. So, but they don't right. recognize Makabe or uh, Yuki in this yeah. in this attire, right? In full in full uniform, yeah. Yeah, and uh, even even. <laughs> Even Yuki is a little astounded by uh, uh, Makabe's looking how he looks in his getup. She's oh, you look, you almost look handsome. I guess she says something like that. She yeah gives him a little trouble, but uh, they are much more. Uh, so I'm when I say they, I mean the royalty uh, that have just traveled this this amazing journey are much kinder to Matashichi and uh, Tahe than I think either of them deserve. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> um, but that goes back, I think, to what you were saying earlier about Yuki, Yuki's compassion, about the new compassion that, I mean, Makabe was not a mean guy. I never got the sense that he was a mean guy, but he was certainly colder in that sense that we kind of think of samurai, the warriors, and maybe not even just samurai, but warriors generally, they, they have this kind of like harsh calculus of, of losses and we have to have some losses to, to win some things. So they're, Right. An idea about collateral damage and and reasonable sacrifices that Yuki has certainly changed his perspective on, and maybe they're going to extend this compassion, even though these guys don't don't really deserve that. They maybe they they do seem to like Makabe is amused by these two guys. Yeah, um, Yuki is even amused by them a little bit. Um, Hyoe is just there because he is now with his friends, and that's 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 what he's going right. to be. But they give them a single uh, you uh, piece, and uh, they 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 apologize to them about not being able to share more of the gold. The princess needs this to rebuild her right. her, her the Akazuki clan. And then our, our 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 droids leave. As they're leaving, they they exchange the the single you piece. Uh, one of them says, yeah. "I'll I'll have it," and that is about the closest thing to a change in their behavior that we see whether one of them is let, willing to let the other one 
handle the gold. Go ahead. Okay. Tell me what you think of that. Okay. Um, because actually, I think that the ending of this film warrants a great deal of discussion. Okay. Because I think that it can be read. And, and uh, two, okay, two things. Um, first of all, Tahe and Matashishi and their, and their character change. And then what the princess and, the, and General Makabe, what, how they're going to do things from here on out. I think that both of those things are actually left uh, somewhat ambiguous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'll give you my perspective. I, I am much more certain about this first thing I'm going to say. I don't think that there's a character change in Tahe and Matashishi because actually, um, yes, they they almost fight over who's going to get the gold, you know, trying to give it to each other. Yeah. But I think that they've done little things like that the whole movie. They have. Because, because the whole time, whenever they're in a bad place, suddenly they want to be friends. Yeah. yeah. And, and their need for each other is, is just immense. Yeah. Uh, now, they're not in a bad place here. So I guess that's why someone might say that they've actually changed. But then the movie ends. Yes, yes. And so, and so I would suggest that the viewer could look at it one of two ways. Either A, it's a character change, which you're implying, yeah. or that this is just the preface for the next breakup. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, no. I mean, and that's I, how I saw it. Well, I, it is ambiguous, I, but I'm just saying, all I'm saying is that is the closest thing to a redemptive moment they get. Yeah. Is it, does it reflect real redemption? I don't know, because these characters have demonstrated that in the distance it took them to cross from in the frame to out of the frame, they can hate each other again. <laughs> right, right. You know? um, right. So it could have immediately been back to bickering. Um, they don't have a moment where, where we would see a, a, a real change. Um, they are, of course, suitably obsequious and impressed with the, with the re revelation of that it was really General uh, Rokuroto, yeah. Rokuroto uh, or Rokurota, Rokuroto, uh, and, and then and then it was a, and then it was the princess. Yeah. They, um, but is that are they moved by their kindness, or are they just being obsequious to get out of whatever trouble they think they're in? They don't they don't act in such a way as to really convey that they've changed. The real change I think that happens is is in the characters of Makabe and, and Tohei, uh, uh, Hyoi, I'm sorry, Hyoi. Um, those guys go through a real arc. It's a subtle arc, but we see the effects that Yuki has uh, on Makabe and then by, by her effects on Makabe, how she, affect, how, how she then affects Hyoi. Well, see, this is why I, I like, uh, in fact, in preparing for this, I was actually going to use the term high adventure. I'm glad that you did. Yeah. Because um, I actually thought, you know, is this an action film? Yeah. I wasn't really sure it was. I mean, yeah. it, it's actually, uh, despite having no supernatural elements at all, yeah. it's more of a fairy tale. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, adventure film is actually, I think, the most accurate description descriptor for this. Um, another good description would be, uh, in, in certain aspects, uh, that it's a comedy. No, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and and there's two reasons I said that. One, because it's genuinely funny. Yeah. Uh, but also because in a comedy, everyone ends up at their starting positions. Yeah. And in this film, that happens. 
Um, uh, definitely, uh, Tahe and, Mati and, and Matashishi, they, they pretty much end up, you know, kind of going back out into the world with one stick of gold. And we, the viewer, I think, kind of doubt that this is going to be enough for them, that eventually yeah. they're going to want more. But, the, but, but also the nobility, they end up accepting their roles. Yeah. Which actually, um, I think if a modern version of this film, that would happen. Yeah. But there, but there would be more of an expression of how the princess was going to do things differently. Yeah. I didn't read this ending that way. And that's something that I'd like to talk about because I, you know, you pointed out that she, she says to Makabe that, uh, you know, you know, now you're dressed the way that you usually do. You almost look handsome. Yeah. And I expected something snide to come after that and it didn't no no and and i actually thought you know she accepts because you know here he is now he's actually in his his yeah. regular garb she's in her regular garb and there's and there's no cynicism about their roles anymore no and so i i, I did some reading about akira kurosawa uh, in his early in his early years as an artist before he even became a filmmaker kurosawa was uh, definitely tied in with, um, uh, I think, almost left-wing, almost Marxist uh, groups. Okay. And he moved on from that. And he was very interested in uh, democratic reforms uh, after World War II. But from what I read, he even kind of started to move away from that. Okay. And Kurosawa was very interested in um, the individual and the individual's ability to... to um, experience the I, I i would say almost in an artistic way i would actually compare it to what i know about stanley kubrick okay because i mean kubrick was a very left-wing figure but by the end of his life his ideas were so unique that you really couldn't classify him yeah and i think that what kurosawa uh, what he's almost saying in this film is that uh the noble characters in this film they have definitely kind of risen above yeah. the kind of um political games that you might find in the novel Dune. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where everyone's backstabbing each other and all this kind of thing. They're definitely fueled by compassion. They have returned to where they began. And this is kind of a Joseph Campbell kind of arc or a uh, theme that I'm, I'm putting into the film. I'm not yeah. saying Kurosawa did, but that I'm putting into the film. That they have returned to where they started, but they are no longer in service of a um kind of heartless regime you know this kind of almost mechanical way of doing politics yeah um and, and but they are also not rejecting their previous roles the princess is going to rule the clan she is going to to rule she's going to accept her her old role and and makabe i mean he's he's in the armor oh yeah yeah you know, maybe a modern film, he'd be like, you know, I don't need this kind of thing. Yeah. And I do know um, that there were a lot of Japanese directors at the time, the, the really good Japanese directors. Yeah. Uh, Otsu was another one who's, I, I've seen uh, one of his films. They were very interested in this period after World War II of the conflict that arose out of tradition versus innovation. Mm -hmm. And how, how do you deal with that? How does the individual deal with that? But, but I think in this film, that's exactly how it ends is that um, our heroes do everyone ends up in their starting positions that we never saw them in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
but they end up in those positions and we just kind of assume that they are now going to move forward in those roles with kind of this new perspective that most people, you know, that, that their, uh, their peers, maybe in the other clans would not have. Absolutely. Uh, that, that's how I saw the ending. Well, I, I think that, I think that you can, you can make those kinds of uh, assumptions about the hero's journey, their journey through yeah. the story. Would the Maccabee at the beginning of the film helped his friend commit seppuku? Mm. Maybe he would have. Yeah. Um, but in the end, he, he, but by that point, he had changed. He, he had changed yeah. enough to not do that. Um, yeah, I think that that's that. I think that that's absolutely right about uh, Kurosawa. But he's a lot of people describe him. I think unfairly as the most Western Japanese director. And I don't think, I think that you nailed it earlier when you said that he was doing something just different from everybody. I mean, sometimes his, his lens seems very critical of traditional Japanese society, you know, um, mm. in the treatment of, of in, in the class structure of its history. But other times, I mean, it's his celebratory of, the, of those kinds of things, of, of interesting things in Japan too. I understand why people see him as kind of a Western Eastern director. Yeah. Um, but I also don't think that that's quite accurate. I mean, John Ford was his hero. And I think there's things about John Ford's art that I don't even always get, yeah. um, even though, even though I like him, but, uh, but I think Kurosawa also did things that Ford didn't do. Yeah. And, um, and, 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 and he was, he was telling stories that had a, 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 a quite a bit more depth than what Ford was doing. And, and Ford's movies have depth, there's no doubt about oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, but Kurosawa was, I, I think, kind of upping the ante quite a bit. It occurred to me um, when I watched the first scene, the, 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 the warrior that you talked about getting killed, who kind of fades into the frame in the very first scene. One of the things that Kurosawa, there was an early point in his life, I read this, that his brother and I can't remember what happened. Some, some tragedy happened. It was either a natural disaster or a battle or something. And um, there were all these corpses. And his brother showed him, you know, the aftermath. And Kurosawa was, was, uh, felt a great deal of revulsion by, yeah. the, you know, all the, all the dead bodies that he saw. His brother wouldn't let him look away. Yeah. And so, and so Kurosawa kind of grew up with this idea that one must be willing to look at ugliness. Yeah one must be willing to look at pain and suffering. Yeah. I think that in what we've talked about, you can see that in this film. And oh, yeah. uh, through the characters, he's talking about um, not being blind to suffering, not being blind to pain, um, but also not despairing, engaging in the dance, which yeah. is what, that's why I think that the, the bonfire scene is actually in terms of thematically, is kind of is kind of the the programmatic scene of the whole film that you know, yeah. I think I think that that's right. I mean, it's certainly Kurosawa. I think was always trying to say things with with his films, and I think that is something. I mean, I think that you you are right that that is that's his message in the film. He doesn't yeah. tell exactly what to think of that message, like you said. He does respect the viewer. That that is the the center that holds the whole piece together. Um, without the without the scene, then it's just an action movie that you know doesn't 
it's great, but I think that that's right. I think that that the fire dance scene is the is the is the crucial scene. It's the linchpin, I guess we might say. Yeah, of the theme. Yeah. Well, um, actually, it's surprising that this hasn't come up. But uh, Toshiro Mifune, who I mean, I I am aware that he was, I think at the time referred to as the John Wayne of of. Oh, I'm uh, sure. I'm sure of Japan. Sure. Um, but actually, I would say of Toshiro Mifune now. It's Mifune. Mufune, okay. Oh no, sorry, sorry. Yeah, um, that I, I, I would say about him, that that underrates him, because uh, actually, I, I, I mean, I did read that he was a bit of a, um, a method actor. Oh, okay, yeah. So I would almost say of him that he was John Wayne star power with Marlon Brando ability. I think so too. I, he's stunning in in almost everything I've ever seen him in. Uh, Top to bottom, this film's got great actors, but he certainly stands out. Well, but he's also, to me, he's very different than he was in Seven Samurai. Yes, absolutely. He's a very different character. He's more stoic, and in that film, he's more exuberant, and in this film, he's more stoic. This film and a lot of other uh, Kurosawa films really demonstrate to me how much Kurosawa has influenced American actors. And, I should add, more importantly, directors. In the George Lucas documentary I saw, uh, there's a great picture of John Milius, George Lucas, and Francis Ford Coppola with Kurosawa. That's, and that's just a small number of people who I know have been influenced by, by Kurosawa. There is a scene in this film where uh, Makabe, Toshiro Mifune's character, is trying to find the princess and the peasants. And there's a close-up intense shot of his face that could have been put in a Steven Spielberg movie. There's several scenes in any Steven Spielberg movie where uh, the character or the camera will rush up to the actor's face so we can see their shock or awe or whatever. You've seen this scene in Indiana Jones and Jurassic Park, but- Oh, most famously done in Jaws. Right? Yeah, yeah, when, with the, when, when Roy Scheider, well, one of those scenes at any rate, when Roy Scheider pops up from the chum bucket after seeing the shark, that's yeah. a scene. Uh, yeah. Were you thinking of that one or were you thinking of another yeah, yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but Steven Spielberg loves that technique and Kurosawa uses that a couple times in this movie, but most effectively there on the, on the hill. But we see it in the editing and the pace. And uh, strangely, th- this was one of Kurosawa's really well-received films in Japan. Sometimes his films weren't always well-received in Japan. I think yeah, because, I that. because he was because he was doing so many different things and, and saying so many different things about Japanese life that I think it it just didn't always sit well with, with viewers. But this one yeah. was was one of the biggest hits of that year of fifty eight in Japan. When it came here, of course it didn't get the same kind of releases, but it wasn't as well received yeah. here as Seven Samurai was. Um, and some people actually there was a couple of critics and I saw this in an Amazon movie review today. Um, some people said it's a silly adventure movie. It's fun. And they, they, they admitted that it was fun and that it was uh, a good time. But they said it's a silly adventure movie. And I thought, I thought that's, I, 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 I was a little shocked by that. Because I didn't think that, that this film, while it is funny, and uh, there, are some, I, there are some really great laugh out loud moments, uh, in the film, I, it never feels silly to me. I don't, I, I, I didn't get that. 
I, I couldn't see it, but I, I wanted to put that out there. I, I, I never saw it as silly. I mean, actually, in, in, in our, some of our previous podcasts, we've talked a lot about and kind of wondered about the use of comedy in action films. I think this film does that perfectly. It does. I agree. Um, this film uh, pivots from, from comedy to action and does so with incredible skill. I mean, there's never at any point where you feel like anything is out of place. Well, and, and this, this might go back to his influence, his, 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 his close reading of Shakespeare. He navigates this comedy drama tension bit so much better than one of his heroes, John Ford. You and I have discussed this. Yeah. Uh, Ford had trouble doing this, but Kurosawa is very, uh, very good at it. No, it, the comedy in this works perfectly with the, with the drama. Yeah, and I, and I think uh, um, listeners that have uh, stayed with us all the way, or if they're just listening to this for the first time, you should go back and listen to some of our, our previous ones and listen to us in order, because this is something that uh, I think that we've been interested in in our conversations as to um, when comedy is done correctly in an action film and when it's done incorrectly. Uh, I, I, I do know that I, I did some reading. The, the ancients, Aristotle and, and Horace, uh-huh. the, the first two major writers who wrote about drama and poetry um, wrote about how one should not um, break decorum. Yeah. So, if you're, so if you're writing a drama, you should never be, try to be funny. And if you're, if you're doing a comedy, you should never, you should never try to be dramatic or dark. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know who actually was the first to kind of break that pattern. I do know in the Elizabethan period, um, there were a lot of writers who, who decided that that was kind of, kind of suffocating. Yeah. And uh, Shakespeare is the big one that we all know who actually broke that decorum all the time because well, you, you would have that in a lot of his plays. Well, see, I interpret the phrase break decorum, I guess a little more loosely than your classical writers might have, because I think that, breaking decorum is to go too far outside of what your content will allow. Like we talked about this in the Superman three podcast where you can have a one liner or a a couple of uh, a couple of physical comedy gags uh, in a, in a scene. And that's not going to necessarily break the decorum of Superman three or, you know, what did break it was a, five-minute montage of, of classical pratfall comedy, which, doesn't, which didn't make sense and didn't fit with the tone of the other two films. So maybe later writers, who was it that you said don't break decorum? Who said that? Uh, Aristotle and then I think Horace, who was a Roman writer. Okay. Um, but I think later writers discovered that decorum wasn't necessarily as narrow, but it has to be content specific, I think, with humor. And I think that's what we've been discovering with, with these... Yeah. With these, with the, with our review of these films, um, somehow Kurosawa nails it. Whereas, from start to finish, there's yeah. no there's no moment that seems inappropriate to me. I think that's a key to comedy working. If you never remark to yourself, "Well, that was a funny bit," you know, or or are so drawn to some some skit or uh, set piece that's happening, then I think that you're within decorum. Like if you. You're not right, causing yeah. the viewer to reflect on it, I think. Yeah. Um, would you agree with that? 
I, I think I would agree with that. Of course, I'm still thinking about it all the time. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure this will be an ongoing conversation. But yes, I agree with that completely. That's, that's well, kind of in I my am. in my. It's funny because because we keep coming back to this discussion about humor and drama. I wrote in my notes after a first after the intro, um, something like, "Why is this working?" Yeah, you yeah. know. And now, the verdict. Yeah, I uh, I would highly recommend this movie to uh, anyone who likes adventure films or or. Um, or even comedies or, or dramas. I, I really think that this film is accessible to almost anyone. It, it is um, uh, in J uh, Japanese with subtitles, but I think that the way, uh, in terms of the pacing of the story, that this movie is astoundingly accessible to almost anyone. It is one of the best adventures that you could uh, possibly watch. And I would highly, highly recommend it to anybody. I, I agree. This is a film with high quality action. It's got great comedy, but it's also a film with with big ideas that it that, and it doesn't bash the viewer over the head with its ideas. I, I'm still astounded that people thought this was a silly movie. This is a thoughtful, uh, as well as fun, adventure film. So that's that's the verdict, guys. Yep. All right, gang, that is the end of episode eight. We hope you had a good time listening to us discuss it. We hope you'll join in the discussion either on Twitter where you can follow us uh, or on our Facebook group. Um, or if we've said something that you disagree with and you want to have kind of a longer discussion, feel free to email us as well. I'll provide those links uh, in the episode uh, page. Next week, we'll be covering The Omen, directed by Richard Donner. It's a pretty good one, folks, so we hope you'll join us then too. Uh, share us with all your friends share us on social media hit subscribe you know the drill bye like if you're going to have a long weekend of drinking and just relaxing yeah, yeah. And, you, and you need a lot of gin or if you're hanging out with me because if you recall there was one night where you and I eradicated an entire bottle <laughs> yeah. in just a couple hours um, Burnett's is what you want because it's like Tangeray do they show Supergirl topless? What? No, no. <laughs> so today we're doing Porky's and uh, <laughs> a classic of American TNA cinema.